0: Sure.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show to be with Mike G, the show of Sazerac Eighteen, the show of Baylor London, Noel Gallagher, Jake Pug, David Bowie. It is an all-star cast or an all-star discussion here with the wonderful food writer slash whiskey enthusiast slash real estate guy Tom Thornton. Tom has been a part of the Austin food scene, a part of the Austin booze scene since it even started to percolate and become a scene in the first place. He's been all around the world. He has a life that is storybook perfect in a lot of ways, and he just facilitated yet another panel at South by Southwest Interactive, South Bytes, just this week. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Tom Thornton.
0: I
2: read the book is it a good book it is a good book michael lewis is the uh, author okay no he, he wrote he also wrote Moneyball.
1: no and, shit yeah the a number same of guy. other things oh wow yeah
2: he's written a lot of really good sort of books about business culture but yeah. that are but he's he's kind of like the bill simmons of business writers or uh-huh. something he translates to like a broad audience yeah and, well he wrote uh i want to say he wrote the blind side too No actually. yeah yeah this dude has got an academy award written all over him. So he's yeah, they've developed some big projects out of his stuff, but um but uh, also Michael Lewis hilarious trivia uh, married to MTV's Tabitha Soren.
1: Tabitha Soren. So man, interesting dude. I remember dude, man. Tabitha Soren.
2: <laughs>
1: I had a dream about Kurt Loder the other night actually. A, a total nice dream, not a not a weird He's still dream. around. He's, he's like a still a critic, right? Yeah, and he looks the same. And I was like, you know, it would be awesome if I could have Kurt Loder up here and just like interview Kurt Loader, because now I can maybe get him no offense but like maybe now I could I think he's like actually working for Huff Huffington Post maybe like like and you know down well, the line
2: so like to, to that to that point i know we've we've like taken a long walk away from what you were oh no talking about Doesn't but matter. um what i've found out sort of by accident over the last you know eight or ten years mm-hmm. writing a, for a long time for free and then all of a sudden it being you know an actual side job yeah. and things like that is that a lot of people are totally willing to talk to you. Yeah. If you just ask and you know you have a place to put it that you know you're that you know somebody's going to see it. Yeah, you know, they are they're, sure. they're flattered to be asked things like that, but I can't believe the people I've been able to interview or chat with at, at least, you know, via email yeah. over the past 10 years, can, but a lot I, of times in person. Can we talk about one specifically
1: which will totally sure. translate into Lemmy and Bowie actually? Sure, perfectly. sure, sure. So you posted something cuz I love Noel Gallagher. <laughs> yeah. I love I love his haircut. I love how much of a fucking dick he is, I love he's just like terse, old man, curmudgeon, yet he's not even that old, but he's stylish guy he is a gentleman, even if he is a ragamuffin of a gentleman, but you posted something like neil excuse me, Noel, kind of paraphrasing, saying that yeah there's there's no longer going to be the Led zeppelins there's no longer going to be the stones, and then Lemmy passes, which in my opinion, maybe was the last rock star that just didn't give a shit, that worked worked in his own rhythm, right? Like by the 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 beat of his own drum kind of thing. And then David Bowie, who was obviously, there are no words to capture how much of an impact he had in music, but how much of an impact he also had across multiple decades in pop culture. Is he right now? I mean, we lost Lemmy, we lost David Bowie. And who's the fuck is left? Does Noel just was he is he just the a, a seesayer like
2: does does he just know these things are going to happen in the world like how does that work? You know it's it's funny that that came out of a, a longer conversation we were having where um, I was actually he was touring as a solo artist for the first time yeah. and having you know having I think more success than he was expecting. Sure as a solo artist where he, he can still play arenas in, you know, in Asia and in Europe yeah. and in Australia. He's, you know, he's more of a, like a theater guy in, in America now. But, right. Um, but, you know, he he's... I think was expecting to go back to theaters everywhere, and mm. found that you know he he still had all this success, and so he was uh, kind of mentoring the singer songwriter Jake Bug. Oh who, yeah, I really? heard of. I so, didn't know that. Yeah. yeah, So he, I guess he he heard early demos of Jake Bug. so Jake Bug was was uh, you know opening for him, and I was like, so what's it like to talk to that guy? And you know that like his career, no matter how successful it gets, is going to be very different than yours just because of the year he lives in, right? right. And he was saying like. Yeah, he said it's weird because, you know, he's young, he's very talented, but, like, he can't really make money off of, like, selling albums. No. And he's going to have to really tour. And, uh, you know, he said it blows Jake Bug's mind when he's like, how did you get 770,000 people to go buy Be Here Now? Right, right. In the first (laughs) five days or whatever. Yeah. and you know, Noel's like, Hey, you know, that was like a combination of pop culture and being right at the the zenith of CD sales and everything yeah. else. And he's like, yeah, that that will not happen to you, no matter, even if you become like a stadium artist it or something. Matter. Yeah, just It just won't won't it happen. Can. It only yeah. happens to, I guess, you know, Adele and Taylor Swift now or something. Sure, but uh, but so anyway, so I was so so my theory throwing out to him just because I have a number of m- musician friends in Austin. as uh-huh. so I'm sure you do, and. Um, I was like so I, I think being a musician now even even for the top 10 percent of musicians a lot of it's like it's a it's a, like a middle-class gig again right there's not a lot of like record company advances and Mm-mm. you know hotel and suites they take money, and stuff merchandising and all of that you even know? yeah even people that are successful I think are living pretty modestly yeah. and or you know are are just touring a lot to earn a really good living rather yeah. because the, you know music is devalued and but he's a good case study there because uh, he sold all of his album rights like I don't know twenty years ago, maybe fifteen years ago. No kidding. And at the time, he actually said the internet's going to make music so cheap that. Taking this money now is the smartest thing I could do. That's amazing. I didn't know that. I think yeah, he did it, and everyone was like, "He's crazy." He just took like a flat fifty million dollar payment in lieu of all future royalties. Right. And sold his thing to like a, a, a trust fund or you know, a, sorry, yeah, a, yeah, yeah, a yeah. hedge fund or you know, some sort of like, make trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and they were allowed to you know license it to commercials or whatever, and he was like, "I'm taking the money." Yeah so that's uh, brilliant dude man. was he was right He's totally <laughs> ahead of the time. Was this in the 80s or the 90s? this was probably around 2000 oh okay okay he had like a but had like a fan club thing it was like bowie net and he would put up unreleased tracks and he would put up like live shows and things like that and it was kind of like a a, a dorky fan club but like on the internet and it was he was one of the first yeah. people to do that so he knew yeah he knew it was coming and so um I was lucky enough through that site to get tickets to see him a couple times in the early aughts oh, when wow. we lived in New York and uh that was some uh, it wasn't his last tour, but it was second to the last tour.
1: Was that the record where he was working with Trent Reznor?
2: It was uh Heathen, I think. Okay. It was okay. I don't think it was Trent Reznor. I think it was I think it was back to like Brian Eno and oh, Tony Visconti to you know. and those guys. Yeah. But Um, it was really cool because since he lived in downtown New York, he was gigging on the East coast, but not really other places. Mm -hmm. So he played like, uh, he played like six shows in less than a year in New York. And he was just, would do like a fan club show. And then two months later, another one. And two months later, another one. And it was, was like moving to, he would play like in like Long Island and then he'd play in the Bronx and then he'd play, you know, at Roseland or whatever. Yeah. Uh, But they were all like club or theater gigs and stuff. And so I got to catch two. I was able to get tickets to two of the six shows. That's amazing. um, How was it? They were awesome, man. I can't Um, imagine. He played this wedding hall in the Bronx, Jimmy's Bronx Cafe and so a buddy wow. of mine who uh is a musician in new york we went and he was making jokes about you know playing the wedding that saturday or you know that that <laughs> yeah. you should uh you know you should order you know uh, a, a round of appetizers from the back bar you know whatever <laughs> yeah. and it was it was like it was the equivalent of like a Lizona rosa That's room amazing. or something yeah. but he was so like bemused to yeah. just be playing in this what was like a, a puerto rican dance hall where they did like salsa stuff on saturday nights wow. and you you know, somehow they found him this random room to play in. So. That's so amazing. It was great. I don't think it's a big surprise that we
1: feel so close to him as listeners. You know, there there are a lot of people that you know Lemmy. I I don't think any of us ever felt close to Lemmy. We felt close to the ideology of Lemmy, right? But Lemmy himself admitted, admittedly, like he wasn't a good dad. He wasn't really in into his kids' lives very much, and only within the past five to ten years from this Mark Maron interview with him that I was listening to, like, did he even make any kind of impact, you know? So it's like, it's it wasn't that about Lemmy, but David Bowie is a guy that we all wanted, like, we would want to hang out with. He just seemed like he was the guy, despite if he's dressed up in makeup or not, you know? <laughs> but it's like he's still an accessible guy, and I think that's what hurts more.
2: I think, uh, yeah, it was strange. Um, I actually... Uh posted this on social media today too um i uh, we were at uh, my wife and i were at a show in new york um, right after we moved there mm. and um i can't I, I wasn't 100% sure who it was it was some british rock thing or it was you know i i think i can't remember but um this girl that was next to uh my wife was like <sighs> <sighs> And we were like, "What's what's, what's wrong with problem? this lady?" And <laughs> yeah. she started tugging my wife's sleeve and was like, "And <laughs> so we look over, and uh, David Bowie and Iman are like sitting, are like standing about four seats down in the row of our like mezzanine yeah, yeah. that we're watching this show in, and they were like leaving an opera box, and so, so you know a song started that they liked, so they just like." hustled into the seats to yeah. stay for one more song. Oh, that's amazing. And everybody was kind of, you know, side eyeing, like <laughs> trying to look, but trying to be cool. And yeah. man, I mean, they they really did look like I mean, you it's, know, his I mean, his wife, of course, the same. is so tall yeah. and striking and he is as well with the you know, he had the kind of the floppy hair then right. and everything. But man, they I mean, they looked like a million bucks, literally, because, yeah. you know, they were wearing, you know, high fashion and were dressed for a night on the town in New York. And you're like, you know, Fuck
1: me. Yeah, yeah. It's like I don't know what how I'm ever
2: gonna, going to go to a mount that fashion wise well yeah i mean that's kind of one of those those days when you're just you're just happy that you you live in new york yeah i mean it was uh there were there were a few moments like that when we lived there um there was one time i was leaving uh carnegie hall Mm -hmm. and uh i went to hail a cab and um it pulled over and um i opened the door and lou reed got out oh (laughs) and and, i mean i guess it makes sense it's carnegie hall right of course he could be going to you know see a show or whatever and laurie anderson was with him and everything but i was like oh that's new york man i just i (laughs) I just shared like i just got into lou reed's
0: cab yeah yeah that was so so amazing some good good
2: moments like that with some of those
1: icons you know it's it's amazing how how accessible everybody really is because we're all just people but sometimes we're on these different stages and people are more revered and it's so strange. And that's, that actually the strange thing is, is if you think about it, i had this conversation the the night with my friend who's in advertising and it used to be where we would review or excuse me, revere the performers, right? There was this different, diff, different dynamic. So there's the stage dynamic, the people on stage, and then there's us, the people that are enjoying the performance. There's a implicit dynamic there, but Something about technology and things being on a flat plane, Twitter is a good example of which I can tweet the president if I want. I don't have to go through any different layers, right? Right. Which is, it's it's flat, it's completely flattened the way in which we can communicate that now the audience views the performer on the same level now, despite the fact that they did not put 20 years into touring, they never did any roadie work. They never recorded demos. All these things that are really uh, paramount to being a successful musician. And do you feel like maybe that's part of the reason where people don't buy music anymore? Because they don't find that dynamic all that special. They think they can do it. You know? I, don't, I you know? And I'm trying not to be jaded about it, but that's
2: i I'm not really sure I think we're just living in a much more fragmented age, and yeah. it's it's funny too because it it cuts in both directions because like um the popular you know bands that are making a good living or that are you know a popular indie band or something. Mm-hmm. Still, if you go to a party with twenty people you don't know, maybe you find one other person that's heard of, you know, a uh, hot chip, or, right, right, or right. you know, um, cut copy, or whatever, yeah, whoever yeah. you want to bring out as an example. Maybe you three did, or four people, people have, dude, maybe maybe three or four, <laughs> maybe three or four people have heard of Vampire Weekend, right? Or something, yeah. but if you go to a group of thirty-five or forty-year-old people, you know, a lot of them won't have even heard of things that are on the indie rock radio a lot yeah. or something. But the big things now are so much bigger. You know, I feel like uh, something like Adele or something like Taylor Swift is like bigger than like Prince was in the 80s or something in some ways because. It, it was like huge. There it's were massive. when Prince and Madonna were popular. There were like twenty popular artists or something, and everyone was kind of spread out amongst them or something. Yeah. Now it's sort of like there are five, and <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good point. <laughs> that are mega artists that every single person knows of, and then there are like a thousand beneath them in right. these different stratas or something. So I don't know how music works because uh, on the one hand, you know, I have an Apple Music subscription for mm. fourteen ninety nine a month. And my six and eight year old daughters could go listen to anything they could ever care to hear because they're on like a family account. Yeah, and so you know they uh, they're into the Beatles right now. And Luckily, so, that just finally hit after all these years. So you know they can listen to the Beatles and they can listen to their Katy Perry and whatever else. But you know um, when they're teenagers, if somebody tells them about you know whatever it is, if somebody tells them about. Uh, Buddy Holly or about Pink Floyd or about Led Zeppelin yeah. they, all of a sudden they can just have all those records and listen to them in a week seems a tad unfair doesn't it well I mean there's <laughs> definitely not the um, I, I heard somebody talking about this on uh, some media forum recently they were like they don't have to work as hard to get those things right. you don't have to save up 15 dollars of your money from a working a side job to, to buy teenager. right yeah, or houses yeah. of the holy or whatever yeah, yeah. where you know when certainly when i'm i'm 40 and when i was in high school you know i was like slowly amassing like the led zeppelin collection mm-hmm. and slowly amassing like uh you know new order and nxs and Cure right. and bands that i was into at the time uh, you know and I, like you'd get one at a time and you'd wear it out for a month and then you'd have enough money to get the $15 and get the next one Yeah, and, you know you actually,
1: slowly build that collection and you have to focus on that record right because you, you can't just have everything like, maybe this is the point you're getting at but like you buy a CD you're listening to that CD for weeks so right. you actually start to appreciate it in a different way because you start hearing these nuances look at things as an album instead of just singles
2: you know Right. And I mean, I felt like I bought a ton of CDs and I did, but I mean, you know, but I was probably buying five a month or something, you know, and I mean, that was was a lot of money, a lot, you know, when you're young. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you are focused on it and you are listening to like the deep cuts and you are, you know, you're, you're playing it 40 or 50 times. And, um, in this era of streaming, I don't listen to anything that much anymore. I don't think any of us do. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. Or we go back to the stuff that we did listen to that way before. Yes. I think the the thing too is like physically having it on the shelf, you know, versus having this theoretically infinite library. Yeah. Sometimes I'm just stuck. I'm like, "Well, I don't know what I want to listen to." So I I end up picking the same 10 things over and over. Again. Yeah. So. Cuz it's like it's just easier. swimming away from shore in a sense. It's like I don't know <laughs> I don't know where the next piece of land
1: is, so I'm just going to keep swimming. I'm gonna, I might die out here you know but yeah, it's, it's it's weird man do you, do you think that your daughters have the opposite problem or, or rather maybe it's kind of a similar problem but that they've got access to everything mm-hmm. but to navigate the everything becomes problematic and like maybe they listen to stuff that's just easier
2: do they you think they get tips from what you have listened to well you know i've, I've tried to you know knowing the fact that you know they are they're not going to you know want to dive into Lou Reed's catalog too deeply <laughs> i don't know like that, that i wanted that dive right now yeah catalog. but you know what i'm saying like <laughs> yeah. uh you know what what i did actually we we went kind of old guard with it and uh i bought them a cd player oh cool. that they have upstairs in our house for like about a year and a half ago and um, I let them check CDs out from my uh, library oh, one, nice. one at a time. Yeah. And so they add, they ask. And so, you know, the, what, what they've actually started by asking is what's really popular? What are like the really popular things? So oh, we went cool. and Googled it and we looked up like the top 10 most popular artists. And yeah. so it was like the Beatles, Michael Jackson, Elton John. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, can we listen to that? Like that's that's like the stuff that people like more than anything else. So yeah, like wow. we we we'll, we'd like to hear those things. And so so you know I I gave them like the Beatles Red Album. You know yeah, the oh, two CDs of greatest hits. And so they listened to that for a few months. And then they were like, well, can we get another one now? And I said, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, but you can keep that one. Like that's you so you cool. like it enough. And so then we did like Michael Jackson's greatest hits. Yeah. And so I think we're gonna do like uh, either Elvis or ABBA next or oh, something. Man. But you know just sort of slowly you know. Give them some classics yeah. to work from, and then they'll, you know, uh, hopefully by the time they're ten or twelve, they'll be interested enough to want to, you know, start diving deeper or something. But That's so cool, you know, they're their own personalities. So who knows if, if, you know, I give them the next one and they never even put it in the player. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here's yes, <laughs> um, right. I don't, I don't know. If I've I've <laughs> never been a big prog guy or a big metal guy, so they they're not going to have that problem.
1: <laughs> I tell you what, like I. I often wonder for a uh, young people, young females, let's say, if you gave them Pantera's vulgar display of power, if they would just have an appalled look on their face listening to it. Because even
2: I did when I listened to it. I do occasionally put like the metal channel on as a joke in the car (laughs) and they always look at me like, what is, stop, stop. (laughs) <laughs> are we gonna crash dad
1: like what, <laughs> can, what's going
2: on can we get back to weekend now yeah, I, I really Come like on. can't feel my face yeah, yeah so, so are, you're not are you a texan guy i am yeah where I did actually, you grow up i grew up in san antonio oh i didn't know that. so okay. yeah uh was born there and graduated from MacArthur high school there oh cool what so. were
1: you i imagine you talk about the cure and order and stuff you were big into music in high school
2: I was, although, you know, what came to um, San Antonio was hair metal. Hair metal, time. yeah, right, right. So, I mean, I, I was into stuff like NXS and New Order and Depeche Mode and The Cure, but none of that ever came, none of that toured in San God, Antonio. Yeah, be a huge bummer. Uh, yeah, it was. I mean, it's it's funny because, uh, you know, there were occasional things where, like, the Beastie Boys or Nine Inch Nails or somebody would come through town mm-hmm. to, like, a club show or something. But mostly everything was eighteen and up, or um, or, or it was playing in Houston or yeah. something. And so I didn't get to go to a lot of the the alternative stuff in high school. But you know, I did I did totally go see like ZZ Top and the Scorpions <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know the Cult and stuff like that. Ah, man, so, Cult. So so you know, my, and my parents were cool about it in high school. You know, that was still the era where it was reasonably, I guess, either it was safe or they didn't realize it was unsafe or something. Yeah. Where, on a you know if a show if, if a show was on a Friday or Saturday night they would could drop us at the Spurs arena at you know 6:30 and be like have fun and you know <laughs> i'll be back at 10:30 so yeah. if the show's not over you just have to walk outside at 10:25 and you know so yeah. but you know, it was fine so, so cool. like you know they were they would be cool about that but then you know shows were like 14 bucks back then too so yeah it was yeah, all that stuff has changed. I you think. could you could work a few hours on a Saturday, mowing the, mowing lawns for your neighbors or something Yeah, have enough to get Motley Crue tickets or whatever.
1: Would have been worth it too back in that time. <laughs> Not now so much, but maybe back then. So did you you have any siblings?
2: Yeah, I have a younger brother who's who's actually still in San Antonio. Oh cool. My parents have moved focus- around oh, okay. a lot, but they're still in San Antonio as yeah. well. What it would it would they do? In San Antonio. Well, uh, my uh, my dad actually was an RV dealer. He sold no travel trailers. Yeah. and He manufactured them as well. So really, I worked a lot growing up on the uh, RV lot on Saturdays and Sundays no to kidding. make pocket money and yeah. to you know learn responsibility and all sure. those things. So. Um, probably not a coincidence that now I do sales as my primary, <laughs> you know, job for a living because it's, it's just it's sort of bored into my brain. You, you know? it happens. It's almost genetic in a way, you know? But yeah, but my dad was, I mean, he was a super hard worker, which, you know, I've, I've kind of rebelled against. I think I'm, I'm type A and I work, I work hard too, but I'm, I try to be super efficient mm-hmm. because I like doing a lot of fun things. Yeah. so. We try and, you know, I try and blaze through the workday as best I can so that we can get to the, the fun stuff. Makes perfect sense. I would
1: do, this, <laughs> I'd do the same thing. And your your mom, was she staying at home? Was she? Yeah, she was
2: staying at home. She went back and got her degree after uh, my brother started high school. But mm-hmm. so, you know, was, that was just like a different, it was a different era of people. I mean, she, uh, you know, I guess... uh She was a little bit younger than my dad. Well, no, she was. they were the same age, but Mm -hmm. he graduated school a year early, and so she left school because they were getting married. So, like, you know. That makes sense. So I'm going to leave, you know. Yeah. But she actually, and and so here's the funny part. She actually wrote for the Dallas newspaper uh, in high school and at the beginning of college and was thinking about going into journalism. You are your parents, aren't you? So (laughs) now I am actually, both of them, yes.
1: Combined, a nice hybrid. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I don't know what I am. Sometimes I kind of think about that, but I suppose, you know, my mom was a free-spirited San Franciscan, if that's the right word, and I get all that stuff from her, and then, you know, my dad's a real business-centric dude, so I don't know, but it's nice to see how we kind of come along We're in this nice amalgam of of our parents, right? (laughs) So did you go to school after, when you got out of high school, did you go to college in San Antonio?
2: Well, you know, it was funny. I got out of school uh, at kind of an earlier age. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had had moved, um, when I was in middle school, uh, we had moved to Hawaii. Oh, shit. Think I think my dad was suffering some career burnout, and my parents needed to just kind of mend some fences and yeah. stuff like that. So we moved to Hawaii so that he could like take some t- like sabbatical from work, and All he right, was still right. running things on the phone and you know on the fax machine and stuff. But, yeah, um, we lived there for a couple of years, and I went to uh, the public schools are terrible there. So I went to are they private, really? Yeah, apparently. Well, you know, there's there's a lot of like class issues and stuff right. like that there as well, but. <clears throat> Beautiful, though, right? So uh, so I went to like a like a prep school thing for those couple years. Mm-hmm. And when I came back, I had a bunch of extra credits. And so they kind of bumped me forward. Mm-hmm. So I graduated high school when I was like 16 and a half. Jesus, really? So, back in San Antonio? Uh, yes. Yeah. And so my uh, folks at the time was essentially said, well, you know, if you would like some help with college, um, you can either... Be in San Antonio for a year, year and a half, and then mm-hmm. go to UT because I was got into UT and wanted to go to UT. Mm-hmm. Or you can go somewhere like small and conservative now. And so, of course, being you know that age, I right. was like small and conservative now. <laughs> so, so I ended up going to Baylor. Actually, no kidding, so, you went yeah, to Baylor. I just went I to know. Baylor, which actually was a good experience for me, and it was probably really the good call on their part to send me somewhere reasonably conservative, where essentially like. Drinking was the worst thing people did. yeah, you know, it was like not bad. well, yeah, you weren't getting mean, pregnant out there, yeah. I mean, people were, yeah, I mean, people were were certainly the 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 moral sort of baseline Mm. was was probably a lot higher you know and so i think it was it was good in the sense that it it kept me honest until a later age i think you know (laughs) and so late so so in 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 retrospect i think it was probably probably a good call yeah would you study at baylor Uh, i did business and marketing and all that kind of stuff and didn't really have a plan for what was going to come after that, yeah, um, but, but you finished up, I guess, probably yeah. in a tight four-year plan. Yeah, well, about four and a half. But That's then my last semester, I actually went to England, which was the start of that sort of fascination. Wow, studying and, uh, abroad, yeah. I guess. Yeah, well, that was I think that was Rick Linklater's fault because I went with a, a girl I was dating at the time and saw uh-huh. it Before Sunrise. We're uh, both oh. like, oh man, we got to go to Europe. That's awesome. <laughs> We're in love, right? It, well, and so it was really funny. So I so so I went to I went to England. And did an exchange and stuff, and then as soon as I came back, she went and did an exchange. and So of course we broke up because right. it was like a, you know an eight month gap or whatever. Yeah, but yeah. But that movie totally you know led me to uh, to London, and then uh, in retrospect to my wife and children because I ended up going back to London for graduate school. No kidding. And uh, which is where I met my wife. And which uh, school did you go to? I went London? to uh, London Business School. Interesting. So how was it, the experience there? It was awesome. I mean, I really went there because I mean, a it's a great place, but um, I mean, it was a chance to live in london for two years amazing and uh so so yeah so i was after college uh i mean i was here in austin from 96 to 98 working uh at texas monthly
1: were you really were you yeah. writing were you doing copy no or- i was doing business
2: stuff uh there like doing marketing and sales yeah. and things like that but i got to you know got to know a lot of the writers and uh it's funny because i've ended up writing for them yeah, I was a, l- a little bit uh, not a lot but a little bit
0: and uh some a lot of
2: the same people are still there hmm. but um it's yeah it's it's funny some you know some great writers there that started when i was there like john spong and you know katie vine and some of these people mm-hmm. just were getting kind of going there at the time and uh so it was a really fun place to work and then i left there to go to grad school and uh and so i was in london for a couple of years That's so cool and, uh, yeah it did really it
1: good. did it i mean when i think about like everything that i love about music you think about manchester i think about liverpool mm-hmm. and to go back into it where it kind of started did you did you find yourself
2: kind of immersed in everything you'd kind of grown up with yeah i mean that was making up for lost time yeah. in a lot of ways because um how, how, and how about a
1: whole 2021
2: no because you have two years so 22 well yeah so i mean i was there so i was in london the second half of 1995 oh sure. and then okay. i was there fall of 98 to fall of 2000 okay so when I was there in 95 or sorry yeah 95 that was actually like kind of maybe 2 or 3 months after the absolute pinnacle of Britpop yeah so everyone was on like uh, their victory lap tours so, I mean I saw Oasis on the Morning Glory tour oh, and Blur man. on the Great Escape tour and you know a lot of yeah. that didn't see Pulp which I still regret Did you see Suede um, I, yeah, have seen Suede oh, a couple times. Man. Um, and so yeah, I have seen, you know, Suede, Supergrass, Charlatans, yeah. Paul Weller, you know, Amazing. all that kind of stuff. And so, um, yeah, so I just, I went nuts and, uh, imagine, man. I've always been someone who was totally fine with going to see things by myself. Mm. So I would always ask other people and if nobody wanted to go with me, I'd just go by myself because I, you know, it was it. like yeah. Paul Weller's playing at the Brixton Academy tonight. I'm going to go see that, Done. you know? And Done. so, yeah, yeah, it was just, you know, that kind of thing, but so I was going to stuff, you know, every week and going to a lot of British comedy and like, you know, or I remember in 95 actually seeing Eddie Izzard before he kind of blew up. Wow. I mean, he'd blown up in in London. But yeah. He hadn't but blown not up globally.
1: He's an actor. He's and, like a respectable actor yeah, now. <laughs> right.
2: But I mean, yeah, there's a lot of that. I mean, there's just so much culture. And so I just was like, well, my time here is finite. I got to do it all. Yeah. And so I tried my best. That's amazing.
1: And so you end up luckily heading back in 98
2: then yes was it the same kind of experience then yeah i mean i had a lot more work to do that time because i mean i was doing doing a master's but at the same time their structure was a lot more self-reliant and their grading system is a lot more lenient i think than in the u.s it's like you go to these lectures they only did lectures monday to thursday so we had Mm -hmm. three-day weekends Mm -hmm. so Uh, you could you could peel out you could take a like a four o'clock flight on thursdays and go to, you know, go to Prague or go to, you know, Rome or something and take three days and, you know, come back early Monday morning in time for your class and stuff. Amazing. It was rad.
1: What was, business major there too?
2: Yeah, and I did that, you know, essentially I felt like I needed to go back to school some more, uh, but I wasn't, I still wasn't necessarily sure what I was going to do next. And I kind of thought vaguely marketing and advertising and that is what I ended up doing. I ended up going to Madison Avenue. After no kidding. Were while, you, you
1: were yeah. a genuine madman? Well, yeah. madman. There was uh,
2: there were there were not bars in the offices and things like that. That is a <clears> shame.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: a huge shame. Actually. But um, but it was it was interesting, man. So yeah, it worked. But you out said
1: uh, to go back real quick. You said yeah, you met yeah. your wife at the
2: business school. In I London? Did, well, yeah, I did actually. She um, it was it was funny. We we would. I mean there was a huge gender disparity there because, you know, the NBA program, you know, 15, 16 years ago, it yeah. was like one quarter women, three quarters guys. Wow. So, it, you know, skews older and stuff, but, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's a lot closer to parity now, but it certainly wasn't then. Mm-hmm. So, um so it was actually funny um you know there were there there were not a lot of women around so when you would meet somebody you would really meet them you know <laughs> yeah. you're like oh hey you know but so, uh, so i knew you existed yeah, yeah. So, but but my wife was actually the younger sister of one of my classmates oh, and okay. she was she was on an undergraduate exchange mm-hmm. but since i was kind of young we were only two years apart so she was like finished, like in her last semester of undergrad, and I was in grad school, but we're only like two years in age yeah. difference. So we kind of fell in pretty quickly, and amazing, uh, and yeah. And so we've been married twelve years. That's
1: so. incredible. So what took you to what? Did you want to work in Madison Avenue? Was that what you had thought about? Well,
2: yeah. I mean, I think I had all these ideas that, you know, you could go and, like, run a branding campaign for Sony and, you know, do all these Hell things. Yeah, and, I mean, Sony. I did, I mean, I, I did work on a lot of those things. I mean, I worked for, you know, Dannon and Sony and, and uh, I'm trying to think, uh, the PGA Tour. Oh, and, wow. And you know, Lipton tea, and all these different things, and you know, <laughs> like, lifestyle uh, brand, singular, yeah. and you know, <laughs> yeah. like whatever else, you know. So, singular I mean, that brings y- back y- some yes. memories. Jesus. but um, so I mean, I did all that stuff, but I didn't realize that you know you needed forty-two layers of signatures, and that everything was you know sort of group and yeah, I, it just um, I, I never never totally found my groove. The the closest I came to finding like a niche was uh, was like research and long-term planning for mm-hmm. brands and doing research on brands and figuring out how people felt about them and yeah. then trying to advise them on, like, well, here's how you should shift over, like, five years so yeah, that yeah. people like you more and people, you know, trust you more. When did you head
1: out to, to New York?
2: 2000. Okay, so you were there for all the shit going down. Uh, yes, we were there. Yeah, we were there for 9-11. Yeah. And uh, still, it's it's a, a, a testament to her character that my wife has, has never really made fun of me or judged me for the fact that on 9-11... I was uh, I was at Midtown, mm. and she was at our apartment, which is was like nine tenths of a mile from Ground Zero. Wow! And uh, so she heard on like the morning TV news that the first plane hit the tower, and so she called me at work, and I was going into a meeting. She's like, "Hey, it's my first day of school. I was about to go to." She she was going to grad school in North Jersey at the time. She's mm-hmm. like, "I was about to go to um, uh, what you call Port Authority and yeah, catch yeah, yeah. the catch the commuter train out." Um, but a uh, World Trade Center, you know, like had a plane fly into it. Do you think that could be like terrorism, or is that like should I stay home or something? I was like, Nah, that sounds crazy. That's oh, just that's man. just an accident. Like, go ahead and go. You'll be fine. Yeah, I don't want you to miss your first day of graduate school. Sure. And so you know, so so then essentially she gets on the train, or actually she takes our laundry over across the street and the second tower, the second plane hits and she oh. doesn't see it even though it's actually in the sight line she just doesn't look south
1: holy shit
2: and goes directly down into the subway and you know about 34th street or something uh they're like sorry everybody get out and you know wow. we can't really talk to you about it but everything's shut and so uh she ended up walking to my office not really knowing what was going on except mm-hmm. for that there was some terrorism or something and She got me, and we walked home. And uh, it was really weird because um, we were walking against the flow of all the people leaving downtown. Because we were—I mean, we had—we were going back to our place, right? Which is closer to what? Which was on Sixth Avenue in Houston, and you know, Ground Zero was just—you know—it was a mile south, and so um, so everyone was walking toward us. And uh, you know, people were huddled around cabs and the cabs had their radios up at top volume. Yeah. And we're talking about what was going on and I remember having to tell her on the walk back that like the Pentagon got hit and that yeah, there was yeah. another plane that crashed and I mean we just had no idea what was going on. So we actually I remember I had put her in the apartment and then I ran to the grocery store, which was miraculously still open. Oh, got really? like three days worth of stuff and you know gallon of milk and you know whatever some some, bur- some, deli, some deli meat some bread and stuff <laughs> handle and just, of bourbon just yeah right just knuckled it yeah so yeah the six pack of beer or whatever i got and we just went home and like you know kind of kept the tv on and we're we're huddled in for about 48 hours just kind of waiting to see what would happen next and, yeah um yeah it was strange so strange um, it was a it was a weird time but um how long were you at the agency i was i worked Different places there for about five, five years, years. Um, but yeah, it was, it's funny. Just finishing that real quick. Um, the you know that fall was really interesting because. Um, at the time, I guess uh, Bush was saying like, "Get out, do things, shop, you know, and all that." Right. And you could really see it in New York because we had tickets to a billion things that fall, uh-huh. and we started going out again about two weeks later. And going to, I remember going to see like a Wilco show, and going uh-huh. to like a play or something. The
1: consummate hipster, Tom. You've seen all all, <laughs> all the uh, the incredible <clears throat> bands, right?
2: But it's but it was like you would go and it'd be a sold out show, and only sixty percent of the people would be there. Really? Because everyone was afraid to congregate in a large space. Oh, I see. So it was really weird. It was sporting events, everything. Everyone was like really, you know, just calling in sick and not going. And so uh, it, like, it took about three months for everything, for attendance to get back to actually, like, full levels yeah. and stuff. I didn't, that's something I never thought about. I never heard that, that aspect
1: of it, you know. The yeah. people, they'll buy the ticket but very reticent to, to go. I think they
2: were just scared. Yeah. And, uh yeah, I mean, I just I remember going to a lot of things and just seeing hundreds of empty seats at something that I knew was really popular. Yeah, yeah. wow, it's a different
1: time. <laughs> yeah, totally different. Did you? So was Austin the next journey? Mm. Is that where you hit, or did you guys
2: move again? No, we didn't. Uh, we well, in two thousand five, we uh, decided that we weren't going to stay in New York forever. Mm. Wanted to have kids. Yeah, um, but just but you know, kind of thought, well, you know, um, we can't live in a one bedroom apartment forever. So we had we sold our our apartment, and uh, the real estate market did us a lot of favors that year. Yeah, and so we quit our jobs, and we actually went around the world for about four and a half months before we moved here. Really? Yeah.
0: When
1: does the story get bad, Tom? (laughs) (laughs) It's a pretty good story. It's a pretty good. It's like scenic, picturesque. You're traveling the world. I've I I I, I'm I'm
2: very lucky. (laughs) Very lucky. What did you do? You recall a specific? Give me a couple of the places you guys okay. went. Well, we 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 put a couple of bucket list things in there. We had mm. always wanted to go to the Toronto Film Festival. Oh yeah, so we did oh, that. Yeah. Uh, we actually started there. Do you then, see anything you can remember? Yeah, actually, there was it was a murder's row of stuff that year. We saw uh, the premiere, of Brokeback Mountain. Oh and we, shit! We sat like uh, a couple of rows behind uh, like the the Gillen like Jake and Maggie uh-huh. Gillen Hall yeah, and yeah. Heath Ledger and all oh, those guys. Wow. And uh, we actually saw uh, Capote, mm-hmm. and so we saw Took Philip Seymour Hoffman. For that. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and uh, we saw, gosh, what else? Walk the Line, Jesus. Corkspride, all That's kinds an amazing of amazing cool year, isn't it? Yeah, it was. A, it was a good year. Um, but so yeah, we we got to see a lot of stuff like that, and. Um, and so we did that. We did Oktoberfest in Munich, which oh, was awesome. Oh, Jesus, man. Um, we, another bucket list thing? Another bucket list so, thing. Yeah. Yes, lots of liters of beer and uh, ginormous turkey legs yeah. and stuff. And <laughs> since we lived in Europe for two years, we didn't do a lot of that. We did a lot of Asia. And we did a lot of Australia New Zealand. Love Asia. And so we we did you know South Korea. We did Japan. We did Vietnam, Singapore, um, Cambodia. You know, just trying to. It, we, we knew You're once so we had kids, we up, weren't going to go to those places. yeah.
1: So. Totally soaked it up. It was good. So what, do you remember the moment we were like, okay, tour's over, everybody?
2: Well, you know what's funny about that is we did that right before smartphones. Mm-hmm. And so um, I guess really iPhones came out in 2007. Mm-hmm. So we were still in the, the end of 2005. It was still like we were totally disconnected unless we were at an internet cafe. Mm-hmm. We had like a global phone, but it was like five bucks a minute to Mm. use so like you'd never used it you buy those like cheap phone cards that you you know call on the phone booth and stuff Mm -hmm. and you call your friends or whatever and so we were really disconnected and uh, my wife says i could do that trip for like six months now with facebook but like she was like i was so lonely toward the end and she said you know it's like it was nothing to do with you but it was just like i had talked to one person for like you know 95 days and she was like i just needed like to go have a happy hour or two with like my that's teacher a, friends or yeah, something an ama- that's
1: an amazing point because after a certain point I mean it's like
2: we had a great time and uh, you know
1: I think it's who so do you funny. know I mean you just meet people randomly but that's not long term relationships you know
2: right yeah you'd occasionally meet people you talk to in a bar for an hour or two and stuff but yeah I mean we were on the move pretty much so yeah it was it was weird so so she she was really done at the end of it and I, I was done the last couple of weeks but I would I think she she was done before before I was <laughs> And you but, said it's uh, about four and a half months? Yeah, it was about four and a half months. Yeah. God, I do not envy you. So <laughs> so it was fun. And then we then we came here with kinda no big plan. I was gonna work with my dad for a while and then figure it out. And here being Texas. Uh, here being Texas and, and your dad your was, dad gonna was gonna still teach. in San Antonio. Yeah, he was still there and uh he was, you know, he was trying to kind of in theory he was gonna wind up his businesses, but it didn't work out that way. But I had actually I should back up a little. I had been writing a little bit in New York. Mm-hmm. Not a lot, but I uh, saw a writer call for Gothamist. The Gothamist, yeah. yeah. And,
1: um, and Which they, is the parent company of Austinus, Oth- right? Yeah, yeah.
2: And so they were looking for writers and it was a little volunteer gig, but started writing about like the Knicks and like the Nets and uh, a couple of random things like that for them. Mm-hmm. And then I got here and we didn't know anyone. And so I sent Austinus a thing and I was like, well, I wrote for Gothamist. Would you be interested in having someone write about, you know, whatever, sports or film or whatever yeah yeah and so uh actually uh I think it was I think it was Matthew Odom that emailed me back and was like yeah dude like we're gonna have a meeting at Club DeVille on Tuesday or whatever and that was kind of where the writing thing started to uh, to happen that's so
0: cool
1: and so you moved to Texas but you didn't go back to San Antonio you
2: actually stayed in Austin uh yeah we've we've been here since beginning of oh six I guess oh okay. okay so um it's a good time for the Austinists,
1: if I recall. It was a good time, yeah. <laughs> I mean,
2: nobody knew who we were or what we were doing for the first two years, mm. but it was a really good bunch of people and a lot of people who have gone on to do cool, important things in Austin over the last two uh, years. So, did Paige write for Austin? Paige McGuire, yeah. Lester,
1: Lester write for Austinist?
2: Uh, I don't know Lester. I don't okay. think. But who, yeah. yeah. So who are some of the? So the yeah, Paige McGuire was was uh, was great. One of one of our you know best folks, and really kind of uh, piloted that music section for several years. Mm-hmm. And um, and so yeah, um, she was she was around. Uh, Patrick Dentler was around, who's uh, high up at C three, and one of yeah. the guys that runs Austin City Limits Music Festival right now i um, trying to thank some of our t- photographers like Pune Ghana and uh, oh, Daniel yeah. Cavazos and Chad Chad Wadsworth yeah um, yeah a um, lot of really great photographers and actually uh, Matt Wright from Wright Brothers Broom yeah, was one he, of our he, photographers he, no shit yeah he was and oh that's J- crazy Justin Cox who worked at public Cox, school yeah, yeah. yeah he was he was uh, our one of our photo editors and um, yeah, I mean tons of really, really good people. And so, um I mean I'm I'm leaving out like twenty people. No, it's a but, big crew. But yeah, I mean it was uh there was a lot of great, great folks. And so I did I did film there for a while, but that was mostly Odom's beat. And then uh our other editor, Alan Chen, talked, That's who I talked thinking, to me Alan, into yeah. uh he was like, You should do food, man. You know a lot about you know a lot about food. You should do that because we need more of that. And yeah. so um uh, he he and my wife talked me into that because she was she was like, dude, we have kids now. You can't go review Explosions in the Sky at eleven on Tuesday.
1: That's <laughs> wait. So when when did you have your? Because you have two daughters, right? Two daughters.
2: Yeah. When did you have your first daughter? Oh seven.
1: Oh seven. So you'd been in Austin a little bit, writing a
2: little bit. A, right? a little bit, yeah. And so, but that uh, most, changes the, the whole that, deal, Yeah, right? mostly that happened after kids. But I mean, for you know the, the first three or four years, it was mostly just volunteer writing for Austinists Yeah. And. Then, other things started to come up where people would ask for help or, you know, things like that. I think the first big sort of break I got or whatever was American songwriter magazine uh, called and was like, Hey, uh, we, we have like a 2000 word feature we need about spoon and our writer can't make it to Austin from Nashville. Can you go do this in like 18 hours? And I was like, Sure, but I haven't heard that record because it's not out yet. And they were like, "Oh, well, we'll FedEx it to you, and you'll have it like two hours before the interview." Again, and, poor
0: Tom. Right. And so it was like really
2: funny. So I went, I went to interview Spoon at the Driscoll, and ended up, you know, talking with them for like an hour and writing a piece uh, in that magazine and then that kind of like, you know, spiraled to, to yeah. other things from there. But that that was kind of where where that went All started. From, yeah,
1: that's so cool, man. Do you? I imagine you've talked to, and I'm sure people ask you probably this question a lot, but I imagine you've talked to plenty of people in the film industry, in the music industry, food industry. <clears throat> Can you think of any of those situations that were particularly awkward?
2: Um, not terribly. I mean, I think a lot of times the access level is weird yeah. because uh, I especially found the few times I did film things... They're trying to shepherd, you know, 30 people through in an afternoon. So a lot of times they'll put you with four other people. And um, I remember actually interviewing Will Ferrell one time. Oh, no kidding. um, Which I I love Will Ferrell. Yeah, um, me too. And uh, he he came in and I was was ready because I knew it was going to be, you know, four other journalists. So I was ready with my question, which was, what do people yell at you on the street the most? <laughs> and he was like, Oh, well, and he stopped everybody else and he was like, Let's make a top 10. And he w- he went through and oh, talked amazing. about all the things. And he was like, Well, you know, of course it was like, You know, we're going streaking yeah. and uh, more meatloaf. And, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm Ron Burgundy, and, you know, all these things. But he was, but, but I, I had my one question that I knew I could make an article out of. Yeah. You know, absolutely. it was like 10 things people yell at Will Ferrell on the it's street amazing. from cars, you yeah. know, and so. Um, so y- you have to fight past that access level sometimes. So mostly people are great, man. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, sometimes, what I find sometimes, especially with musicians, is um, if you call them, even if it's a scheduled time with their publicist, mm. if you call and, like, uh, I remember one time I talked to Carl uh, Newman from New Pornographers uh-huh. and uh, uh, love him and Nico Case and all those guys. And, you know, I called and they were, like, just finishing a sound check. And you could tell, like, people were asking him questions every 30 Right, seconds. right. And, and he was grumpy, but he wasn't grumpy at me. He yeah. was just like pulled in seven seven directions. Sure. And I thought at the end, wow, this guy hates me. And then I read the interview and it was actually really fine. It was just he was so distracted, yeah. but he actually managed to give very thoughtful, articulate answers anyway amazing uh the one I remember being openly hostile was uh, Stephen Merritt from the magnetic fields that, oh really that was probably the hardest
1: interview I heard what, what was the point was he being uh what's the word um combative or? he just
2: wanted to argue about everything and so I would i would say something about you know that I thought he did this new production thing or something he'd be like no one's done anything new with production since the Jesus of Mary chain there's just nothing new to do you know Jesus. there was just <laughs> and, and apparently he just that like that's just his 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 demeanor and that's why he doesn't tour a lot is he's just he 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 can't like he he's just kind of always creating and he doesn't really you know, he doesn't really want other people's opinions and stuff. And so I don't know. Apparently that that was not a unique experience. Interesting. um, I remember I remember him being being more challenging, and, and maybe it's because I wasn't, like, you know, I mean, I know the magnetic fields, but I'm not, like, a, a student of their catalog
0: Yeah, or me either.
1: What, 69 Love Songs? Is that the record? Yeah, yeah, which is a great, yeah. great record. Love but, songs. yeah,
2: so, but, I mean, most people are really nice, and uh, and I think most times uh, people are, are happy to chat with you, and, I mean, my, my favorite thing with chefs and with musicians is just, you get to meet someone that you think is really good at their craft, yeah. and then just ask them whatever you want yeah and a lot of times I just you know kind of ask about the craft or about what you know what interests them and and you know they then they kind of you know the answers right themselves so.
1: yeah yeah it's it's one of the things that's been really wonderful about chatting with people up here, which is a little bit more access, a little bit more time, a little bit more long form you know you do mm-hmm. podcasts all that shit, but the stuff that you learn about people, man, the people are very transparent, they really are and they're very honest, they're very open, they're very passionate, especially in this industry. And I, I wonder what that moment was, because to me, you're a music guy for sure. But professionally, I think you're more in the
2: food and booze culture. Yeah, I mean, the last five years have really kind of, uh, that, that's that been my lane in Austin. Yeah, and yeah. so, um, you know, I've been doing, you yeah, know, I was a food editor at Austinist for a while. And then when that started to wind down, um, then um, I took over... At culture map which is yeah. not a, that's that's a bit of a misnomer because I, I really consult for them more than anything else they mm-hmm. do their own content but I, I read a couple columns a month for them and yeah. help them decide what to cover um because you know they it's such a you know it's so funny because i know sometimes people uh, you know go well you know those things they just crank out 200 words and things like that but man, those guys are under incredible pressure under whether them, it's like yeah. them or eater or whoever else it's like you got to you know you're contracted to write 5 pieces of content a day Jeez. and you know you've got 90 minutes to get an article grammatically correct and with yeah. an image and up on the internet with some links and and have it be something that's actually of interest and i mean the pace is just breakneck and yeah. you know and that's why every a lot of things are really short and linked to other things and whatever cuz nobody there are very few people paying for original journalism these days yeah. um, most people are just like cover breaking news and cover things that people are excited about happening. And so it's like, Shake Shack's coming, you know, or whatever else, yeah. you know? And so <laughs> those guys, man, they, 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 write, I mean, they're just, they're just cranking for, you know, from eight to, you know, five thirty and yeah. trying to, trying to cover the news as it's going. And, do, I mean, do you, do you think that
1: that's changed the face of
2: journalism though?
1: The yeah. hyper consumer, kind of super saturation and just like eat, 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 compul- you know what I mean? Like, Well, data, yeah. Data, data, data. I mean,
2: I, th- I think the biggest thing is, I mean, uh, now, you know, the the thing that I write every month there is, I mean, in every month it's some kind of a list. And I mean, yeah. they, they you know, pay for that piece and everything else and they want it to be a thoughtful list. And so, the, you know, there's a food budget and, you know, can go out and try some things. But, you know, but they still, at the end of the day, you want like, hey, eight business lunches in Austin or something. They want right. something that's that's, Has a soundbite on the front end of it, you know. They don't want it to get too esoteric um, because they want it to be. I mean, I think what most mainstream media outlets are doing now is, well, we need service pieces. Yeah. So we need something that's like handy on a phone Mm -hmm. to do, and you know, not that there isn't some long form things going, and you know, the Statesman and and uh, you know, uh, to to a certain extent, the Chronicles still do sort of longer form things and stuff like that. But There's not. There are not a lot of people that have. A long enough leash to do um, long form food journalism in Austin. And do you, know, Do you think there's an audience for it, though? Yeah, I do. And you know, I think who may end up doing it is uh, Tribeca, because uh-huh. I know Katie Katie Freil used to work at Culture Map, and she's the editor at Tribesa now. And I've seen her. She's mentioned to me several times. She's like, I I think I think Austin needs it now. And she's like, yeah. you know, I think the the big development over the past couple of years has been that. Um, you know, getting, going from only having one food critic in town to having a few. Yeah. I think that's been a positive well, change. Absolutely. Varied having, tastes
1: is a great thing. Yeah, well, and. If it's the one that I'm thinking of, which I can't even recall her name,
2: terrible tastes, you know. and Well, it, well you know, I think the, the challenge is, you know, a lot of people will be like, oh, you're a food critic. And I'm, I'm not. Yeah. I, I write about food, but I don't go review restaurants. And so I mean I I certainly curate them because mm. a lot of things get left out because I and I don't cover them because I don't like them. Yeah, yeah. Um but um you know it's not going into something that I'm writing if it's not good or you know if I don't I don't feel like it has redeeming qualities. Right. Um but so you, you play know, you, you play
1: it pretty uh, democratically if that's the right word. Diplomatically rather. That's well, like if something really really bugs you and that is very under par you're not going to call attention to it you'll just not talk about it
2: well I, you know that would tend to be more of like something on social media yeah. to mention or uh, something where I would write a letter to like the owner or the manager and be right. like man this is what not what happened yeah yeah. And I mean I've definitely done that before um, because inevitably it happens when like we have a good experience and then I you know take my wife back for like an anniversary or Mother's Day or something mm. and they like totally drop the ball and Shit. you know and I'm like Ugh. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm supposed to have this on lockdown. Like, why? Why did this happen? Right. Um, but yeah, service services is, is still a big big issue in Austin. But I mean, but all all of that to say, I mean, I think it's great. You know that like. For a while we just we had Mike Sutter mm-hmm. and then there were some people just kind of, you know, writing puff pieces in different magazines and newspapers and stuff and you know, it was sort of just Sutter. Sure. And then when Sutter did the retirement package and they got Odom to come on, mm-hmm. you know, so it was just Odom for a little bit, but then now Awesome Monthly has Jolene and um uh, the the chronicle importantly has Brandon Watson he's yeah, yeah, yeah. very opinionated and and a really fun writer i sure. think yeah yeah and um and and then we you have a number of other people not necessarily doing reviews but doing you know constructive criticism and doing more opinion in their restaurant writing right. uh, and so you know i i think we, we we've got now a scene of I don't know, 12 to 18 writers that are covering sure. food pretty regularly in Austin. Are you, pretty,
1: are you excited about So there's an interesting dynamic or, or rather dichotomy going on at the moment with Austin cuisine in that there is there are a lot of concepts that are failing, and whether that's because of staffing, you talk about La Vie, you talk about metal, just closed within the past couple of weeks. And mm-hmm. then at the same time, lots of other highbrow concepts coming in to the fold do you think that Austin can take all of that? Do you think that the economy will actually
2: support that? Well, I think those <clears throat> those three shutters that happened recently all yes. happened for very specific reasons. Sure. Um, you know, Congress was absolutely because. Um, Second barn kitchen is a cash cow. Sure, great and, spot too, man. It's so fun. And so they essentially decided that Jason Stude was going to do Boiler Nine, mm-hmm. and that David Bull was going to expand that second barn kitchen brand and do you know a few of them around Austin, or maybe you know I don't even know they may go to other markets. Yeah, would. yeah. But they're also those guys are developing a hotel on the east sure. side too. So I think they were basically and in market like, too, right? they were basically like hey Jason Stewart and Jason Stevens take boiler 9 and David Bull you yeah. grow the cash cow and uh, let's you know go out and make some money and so i think yeah. that was see- kind of the, the thing and th- stuff right like that, that all that stuff yeah so so actually bar congress is going to essentially move over into boiler 9 oh. i think when they open from from what I know of it, yeah. you know, that, that there'll still be a bar in that space. But mm-hmm. Jason Stevens and that bar program are gonna move into Boiler Nine. Oh cool. Okay. So uh so that will you know, they won't disappear, but they're gonna kind of move down the street. Sure. Which is um, good. I mean it's a great it's a great empire. That's a great yeah. Jason behind any bar empire is fucking gonna be good, you know. But then, but then with Levi, they just uh, they they lost a lot of the the key people that I think made that place great, mm-hmm. and I I just think that you know that was that was a struggle personnel wise to recover from sure. that, and the metal just never hit with the public. It was a good. The food's good, but
1: it, the the location was interesting, and it wasn't challenging. And there's parking and stuff, but it it
2: just no one knew about it. it felt like. But, but, I mean, it was inevitable that some of that was going to happen, sure. you know, because, I mean, there are only so many expensive places that people can take. And, I mean, we struggle with it because we're always trying to keep up with what's new. But yeah. you end up not going back to places you like. And, um, you know, I uh, I was reminded recently because we went to the opening of uh, Central Standard, which is the new place in the South Congress Hotel. Oh, okay. Jesse Jesse Herman, who has his lock and desa and sway, uh-huh. yeah. he's kind of behind that. And uh, I was like, man, I forgot how good all this guy's places are, you know, yeah. that, like, he really knows
0: what he's doing. Yeah, and Dust is still, you know, it's a staple. Like, Lock and yeah.
2: Dust is still a staple, Sway's, like, really good. And so I was like, you know, we went there and we had, you know, had just, like, shrimp cocktail and, like, kind of basic things like pork chops. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this, is, this food is killer. You yeah. know, like, I forget how good his places are because he hires, like, really talented folks. And, yeah. You know, and so, uh, you know, it's funny. You just, you, you never get to as many places as, as you want to. And, I and mean, then by that,
1: the time sometimes you miss it, it's gone.
2: Yeah, or yeah, you miss like the high points or that kind of thing. But I mean, there's only so many dollars to be spent. And so, yeah, I mean, there's going to be, people are going to die off. And yeah. I mean, certainly it's like that in New York and San Francisco and everywhere else. And um, I, I actually, just think we hadn't
1: seen it before, right? Because we're still in the early ages or the
2: early dawn of our evolution culinarily in Austin, I think. Well, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that, actually, because uh, I had an idea for a panel at South By, mm. and uh, we submitted it through Food and Wine Alliance, and Miriam Parker's going to moderate it. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, the idea is, if you're a restaurateur, what do you do like, from year two on? So, like, how do you, uh, so we called it, like, Days of the New or something like that. But, like, the idea, the idea you being. You love that band, don't you know? Yeah, well, yes, no, I actually don't even know if I know what they sing. It's but, a, it's not so pretty. It's but, not a pretty but it's, pretty so, But it's so funny because, like, you know, even if you're Lenoir, if you're whoever, you're not getting a lot of ink mm. if you're Lenoir, like, in year three. And so how do you make sure that you fill every spot, you know? Uh, you know, I mean, because not every place can be in like the Statesman top eight or whatever, mm-hmm. and so I, I think that's that's the question that Austin now has to answer: is how do you how do you uh, you know sort of support mature restaurants that are good and have a steady hand? Sure. And so we actually we're going to have uh, Tyson Cole on that panel because oh, obviously cool. he's figured that out, absolutely figured it and, out, and uh, and Andrew Wiseman from San Antonio mm-hmm. who uh, uh, the uh, Sandbar. Yeah, and, and like La, uh, he had La Reve for a while yeah. and El Sogno, and yeah. That's so he's fun. he's you know he he's been a, a mainstay there for a while. Mm-hmm. So so it was funny. So so we when Mary and I were kind of putting the panels together, we did that, and then we're also doing a uh, drinking panel, which I'm uh, which I'm moderating at oh, nice. by this year, and it's it's about in the it's what we started talking about tonight, which is in the area of like. Happy Van Winkle, uh-huh. and like uh, what is it? Cascade Ales from Oregon, costing thirty-five dollars for a bomber and stuff. Right. How do you like drink really great craft product, but at a reasonable price? And so that's yeah. the one I'm. So I'm going to do that one with uh, Emma Jansen from mm-hmm. Imbibe, and with uh, Cosmos, and with um, Michael from Austin Beer Works. Oh, cool! So, uh, Very cool. Be an interesting conversation to
1: have. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And like I, you know, the '86 Company, because Jason was on the show. I mean, that's not craft stuff. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, no, no, no. Not say it's not good because it's great. But it's like they are. It's on this whole other level. You know, and Emma obviously has a lot of experience with with the craft stuff, but it's you talk about whiskey specifically, man. Like, there's just the economies of scale that no one has really reached in the craft market yet. You know, can't even beat. You know, you think about Wild Turkey One Hundred One Bourbon, right? Get it for eighteen bucks, right? Insanely delicious. Yes, eighteen.
2: Fucking dollar! I mean, that's inc- it's
1: crazy. That's what
2: I'll that's what I'll buy when I can't find my baby sars or well or twelve. Exactly, this is wild turkey 101.
1: Yeah, it's inc- it's incredible. Bro. Works great cocktails. So. Yeah, and I almost find like when you add water to it, it it's not as good. It's best like straight out of the bottle. Maybe a little bit of chilling, you know. But ultimately, but I think that's actually a perfect gateway into. We'll talk about spirits in a second. But you've picked every time, you know. I sit down and chat the guest. The measure of protocol is that the guest picks a bottle and you have picked the 2014 release of the Sazerac 18, second to last year, been a stainless vault that's been in existence for quite some time. 18 years old, not single barrel, it's a blend, but it's a straight rye whiskey and this is at about 45%. What do you what do you think?
2: It's lovely. Well, it's it's not here anymore, which, uh, <laughs> which should tell you a lot, but yeah, the I mean the balance of it, and it doesn't. It's it so funny with so many of the older whiskeys, it kind of leans into that that sweet, you know, treacly. And this is not that no. in any this is way, very, shape, very very dry, still. It's very crisp. it's very dry, but it's super drinkable. Oh, yeah. it's not. Um, yeah, it's there's 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 no burn. It's got a nice nice sort of warm spice to it, but it's a different flavor of
1: rye than, than Heaven Hill puts out, for example. Mm-hmm. Almost literally a different flavor, and it's tighter and and kind of drier and very very luscious and i'm curious as to the batch that comes out in 16 if it will taste anywhere
2: near this, well, I mean, and we may never know. <laughs> it's so <laughs> yeah. hard to find all those things, but, right. but yeah. But it, I mean, it's lovely, lovely to try this stuff and and uh, you know get a little taste of what the what the benchmarks are. And yeah. I just love to
0: to try and get a couple of
2: you know a couple of pours from bars once a year. Sure. Just just see, just r- remind my palate what those things are, so that when you're tasting things against the the standard bearers that you know you know how they
1: differ yeah so. it's pretty there's rye is an interesting thing and this handles
2: it obviously buffalo trace which i love their stuff
1: but they handle it in a really impeccable way with the size the 18 you
2: know it's funny i mean my wife prefers uh, rye to bourbon and really? so we end up using we end up having rye around the house more often mm. than we have bourbon and i use rye in a lot of our cocktails it's a classic because she just likes the like the the, the spice, you know, yeah. pepper punch. And totally stuff, understand so. it.
1: Yeah, I'm a bur- I mean I'm a bourbon guy because I'm a softy, I'm emotional, and <laughs> <laughs> there's something so sweet and just luscious and deep and and compassionate about bourbon, you know. So I, I find myself flocking to that far more often, and I'll always stick up for that shit mm-hmm. every single time. So when did you kind of make because you're a beer guy and a spirits guy? You've have, have covered us and obviously I really appreciate the support Tom for for what you've done for Genius and in the press and everything. But when did you kind of come to be that guy? Cuz it seems like you were you had the the maybe you're talking about the Knicks and the Nets like you had the sports background, then you kind of move into food a little bit, but you're not a food critic, self-proclaimed non-food critic. When did the the rise and the evolution into beer and spirits kind of come
2: about?
0: Well, I mean, I think
2: I always followed craft beer, and so that was the thing I was sort of chasing before wine or mm-hmm. before spirits. And then in 2003, three, four, we went to Sonoma on a vacation, yeah. and my boss at the time was like, that's the most expensive trip you'll ever take in your life. <laughs> and uh, he was absolutely right, because, uh, you know, it, it changes your palate and makes you want more expensive stuff, right. and makes you realize how they make things, and... Um, that became so then I became big wine nerd and so I, I do collect a lot and have a you know a cellar at home and mm. stuff and uh, actually did quartermaster of master sommeliers level one last year okay. to Very cool. kind of just learn more and I think I'm about to start level two it's going to yeah. take like a year so I'm, I'm like on the fence about whether I'm going to do it will you
1: not, still but. talk to me in a year because a lot of those guys I mean they're pretty uh, you they, know? <laughs> they are it's funny they're serious
2: <laughs> about their craft but you sure. know most of them are, are so you know so smart and like you know it's funny you talk to somebody Like uh, Craig Collins, who at Elm, you know, who he's he's you know master sommelier and everything, but he's also a beer nerd and he's also you know he also loves whiskey and they do a lot of a lot of their more casual stuff at Easy Tiger, you know, and they'll they'll do pappy flights. But but there is there is not a
1: moment though where you don't know that Craig's a master som. Well, not, in my I think those guys, I mean,
2: there's 200 of them in the world. I yeah. mean, you got I, I, I to, think, I think I too would wear that badge with a lot of pride. Sure. <laughs> there's two ways to play it, right? You can be
1: like Jack Nicholson, right? Where, And I love Jack Nicholson, but he doesn't want to have much to do with the common man, so to speak. But then you've got other people like David Bowie. You've got people like Tom Hanks, right? Where they're just like a man of the people. And no matter how talented and how one of a kind they're, they are all about promulgating the message of education. And that is something that's really, really key. And I think that, do you feel like sommeliers in the wine community could, uh, and I, I hate to even say this, but could
2: benefit from s- some humility? You know, it's a, that's a tough question to answer because I think that my experience has been that those people have always been really great to me yeah. when I've reached out and asked questions and... um uh i would specifically think of like paula rester mm-hmm. and of like uh June and uh, and of craig as people that i have asked a lot of questions about over the years about you know education and about you know hey i need to learn about this type of wine are you right. guys doing any training to your staff can i stop by or you know that kind of thing and they've mm-hmm. always been really happy to help i think some you know i i i, I think that you know some other people maybe haven't had the same experiences that i've mm-hmm. had but i've I've always had a great experience with the austin some crowd i you know it's it's funny though I mean it definitely definitely is its own kind of club and, and it, smart, it works apart yeah. but but you know if you think about it too, Austin beer is its own club oh and sure. they have their own thing and and so you know it's it's interesting and and you have also a lot of hobbyists now or that that have become you know people who are kind of in the game. you have people. Somebody more mild like me, or someone mm. who's taken a couple steps further, like uh, Matt McGinnis, who sure, you sure. know actually you know has gone done a level two certification, yeah. and, and is a certified som and you know teaches you know occasionally or does seminars. Or you guys like are me. nice
1: though. <laughs> you guys are really, <laughs> you guys are really <laughs> there are nice. There a lot of nice people. in the nice world, people. Tom. there's absolutely lots of nice, nice people. But but uh, there, I, but I, here, I don't know. There, there that it's a is a crisis there is, there is necessarily,
2: in, in, in the sommier world in general is uh, I, I do see, see it kind of as as a clicky yeah. world sometimes, but I also um, some of the the most amazing classes I've ever been to the like Guild of Sommiers does seminars um, every couple months mm-hmm. on like a Monday and they they it's like they charge forty dollars and put like. $1,300 worth of Napa wine in front of you oh, to sample, you know, not, not that you're having all 13, but right, you know, right. if you were to go buy it, it would cost that much. And, you know, they do a three hour workshop so that you can like taste Napa or you can taste like every country of Grenache yeah. or something. It's amazing. And they education wise, like Austin is one of the top probably five or six places in the country uh, because of the fact that we have, you know, several master psalms here. Yeah. Um, they, they push education events to Austin rather than like San Antonio or well, it makes some sense, sense. Yeah. It's great
1: cu- i'm i'm not saying that there isn't a great culture for spirits beer and wine because there is and i've witnessed firsthand and talking to people whether it was paula right and hopefully from josh from ops and grain will be on and we can we can talk about it and get more immersed in the beer piece but there is a community and i really appreciate that and there it's evolved past the juvenile or the infant stages right we're we're really really blowing
2: up now well, yeah, and I mean, and it's so funny to think about just where cocktails were here five years ago versus right. now, because, I mean, right. I wasn't, I've only been bartending at home for three or four years, maybe. Mm. I mean, maybe maybe only three, I don't know. But, uh, you know, I, I just, until Eastside Showroom kind of came along, um, I wasn't really paying a lot of attention. Or, actually, I should take that back, because the first time I really was paying any attention to any cocktail I had was when we went to Fino, and it was Bill Norris behind the bar, Josh Loving, sommelier, Brian Stubbs' manager. Right. And they had, you know, essentially murderers row of, like, smart dudes there, you know, working that place. And so that was kind of when I started noticing, oh, hey, maybe I'll have cocktails instead of wine. Yeah. And and so, uh, yeah, so it was, like, Bill first, and then when Bill left, you know, we'd go and visit with Josh Mm. and, you know, he was like very indulgent with us, and would be like, "Oh, well, here's why I'm spraying like you know pine in this glass, and <laughs> yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff." And so he was, you know, so just so I would say, Josh Loving and Bill Norris were like our kind of gateway people into yeah. that that culture. And then um, you know, we just got nerdy about it from there and started bartending a lot more at home and experimenting. And now, you know, my cabinet is exploding with amari and bitters. I can't and imagine. yeah, it's I have way too much stuff. But
1: what are you looking? Th- forward to next in the evolution
2: of this whole thing yeah it's a good question i think probably trying to do more pieces somewhere where there's reporting yeah um i had fun we went up to portland last fall for the feast festival and kind of did reported out a piece on what uh the feast guys are going to be doing with aaron franklin and james james moody uh Mm -hmm. which they have a festival coming sometime i think late spring That's going to be some sort of they're they're being coy about it, but it's going to be something to do with like, you know, some dudes grilling things and some rock music. Well, and and and
1: I hope I've I've been in some chats with them and we'll see if we can not uh, have a nice mezcal taco day
2: or breakfast or whatever. Well, that would be good. Well, yeah, they're they're all really great people and. Yeah, I actually got to got to actually spend a little time with Aaron Franklin there in September, which was nice because we just kept bumping into him on the street yeah, in yeah. Portland because we're all going to the same places. We're like in the lobby at Ava Jeans or we're at you know Pock Pock waiting uh-huh. for them to open or whatever, and so we had you know good good chats. But um, I like you know reporting pieces out is fun. Like uh, I did the I also did the Texas Monthly uh, 120 Tacos issue. Yeah, I didn't so know we went, that. Okay, we, we went and did. Uh, yeah, there were a couple of us working on Austin stuff because, uh, of course, the Pat Sharp, the editor, lives in town, and mm-hmm. uh, Courtney Bond, who's one of the big, food, like one of the main food writers there, lives in Austin too. But we uh, we all went and destroyed, you know, several hundred tacos in Austin to get to the, you know, twelve or fourteen that we chose, and that was a lot of fun. And again, so, yeah, Tom, I just got to stop you for a
1: second. You got to live in London for a while. You got to see all those bands, the Britpop on the up and up. You get to travel the world with the woman that you love. You got to write, eat, facilitate a South by Southwest panel here coming up, and go to feast and write about it and eat a shit ton of tacos. Like, it's been a pretty good run, wouldn't you say? It's
2: been a pretty good run, man. <laughs> yeah. and some somehow, you know, uh, real estate pays the bills, and, yeah. and I've I have a facility for that, thankfully. Um, to indulge our, our other habits and uh, people seem to like and trust me in that field. And, um, and so, yeah, this weekend uh, we'll we'll keep it going. So we're, we're, we're working on a piece for San Antonio Cocktail Conference oh, cool. this weekend yeah. and uh, and uh, may go down to Miami in February to check on Paul Key's new place in, uh, in South Beach. Oh, nice. That's so amazing. That's kind of what's what's next on the horizon, I
1: guess. Yeah. How do I get in on this? What the, how do you, like, uh, is, there, is it on Indeed? is there there a job opening that's like do this stuff that people want
2: to do and eat and drink while doing it you know i think mostly it's a matter of just careful planning thinking ahead and pitching stories around things you want to do anyway Mm -hmm. and so i try and do that and since uh, you know lucky enough to have four or five places that that um you know i can pitch to then just look for hey what's a good fit for this outlet and you kind of have to think about what do I read on that site what do they like what gets traffic for them and then yeah. you know you kind of try and match your idea to the right venue and then it tends to work out.
1: You gonna open a place at some point? Do you ever want to step across the line? No. You're rolling your eyes. No, <laughs> no, not line. not not
2: even a little. I mean, I, I have so much respect for you guys, uh, your entrepreneurs who are doing your thing and trying to you know kind of kind of stake your your. Um, uh, part of, you know, sort of taking right, the right. ground in Austin and finding finding your nation, your place here. Um, I'm real risk averse and I, I can't see myself doing I mean, investing in Jester King was essentially like the best we're gonna do mm-hmm. in that regard. And so, you know, we're like, all right, so, you know, we got a couple percent of Jester King. So like, hey, we did something for the yeah. Austin food scene. Yeah, but then, you know working on food and wine alliance is I guess another thing we kinda do to for the for the food scene as well, trying to help bootstrappers like like all of the hundreds of you guys that are making our whole food ecosystem and, and the products we're allowed to to get and stuff here yeah. so much better.
1: It's good. It's, it's a great place to be socially. It's a great place to be professionally in Austin. And the community is unlike any other. It's been amazing working with the Austin Food and Wine Alliance, knowing you, knowing Miriam, and some of the other great people involved there. And, you know, <laughs> just keep fucking doing it, Tom. It's a it's a good gig, man. I mean it, it, I'm I'm really envious and I I'm so glad you were able to come in and we could share a rye whiskey, which doesn't happen all that often. Oh, good, Something good. that's nice too, you know, and I, I just hope we can keep working together
2: and keep working on things and making it exciting for everybody. Well, absolutely. I really uh, I enjoyed your your new gin we got to sample on the way in tonight. Yeah, and I that's, that. Uh, that. looks like a raging value. A raging value. That I'm putting that in the label. What is that? What is that going to cost at, at the store?
1: At the store. So we're not even playing the retail game. Oh no. This is for the industry. This is to enable people behind the bar and our distributor to be more profitable because the much like us a small to medium level distiller we have distributors that are of the same profile small to medium level they're not really able in terms of resources and funding to compete with glazers or the southern southern glazers thing or republic so you know what let's start a little bit of a revolution and let's try a different model and let's try to enable them to be more profitable and move more product because you know what people don't care about the well gins they've never really taken it seriously and I think and I hope that maybe with the new highborn gin that we released that this is the first play in a different model for small to medium level distillers instead of thinking about getting bought out all the time or making something they're going to charge $50, play it low, move volume, and see what happens. You know, it's a different model. So we'll see how that goes. Awesome. Maybe we'll talk about it <laughs> this year. But anyway, man, thanks so much for stopping by. It's been a great chat with
2: you. And... You know, when's the autobiography coming out? Oh gosh, now I, I'm going to wait for my children's autobiography because I think I think my parents look at me and go like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, this guy has yeah. like gets to do all these cool things. And I look at them and they're like, you know, speaking Spanish at eight years old and asking man. when we're going to you know travel to other countries and all this stuff. And, right? You know, it's like man, you know, they're 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 going to just level up from there. Yeah. Well, it's been brilliant getting to know you
1: and uh, being envious of you. I won't get too envious because it turns dark real quick. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen some movies about it. You no, know. no. What's yeah. in the box. Anyway, but thanks so much for chatting with me, Tom. Hopefully, it won't be too much longer before we chat, chat Th- again. So. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. Well, there we have it. Another wonderful conversation, this time with Tom Thornton. Do you guys envy the David Bowie story, seeing David Bowie in a small venue? I mean, we Tom and I just chatted about this shortly after... Mr. Bowie passed away, so it was very much at the forefront of our minds, and both of us were listening to a lot of Bowie thereafter. It's been great getting to know Tom and understand his story, really wonderful, checkered, pedigree, quality, academic background, and the guy writes really, really well. Do you remember The Austinist? My first exposure to Tom, do you know Culture Map? He's at the forefront of the food culture here in Austin and a massive music fan to boot. So this is the second interview of this wonderful South by Southwest 2016 week. First chatting with Marion Parker, who facilitated a great panel with Tyson Cole. I think Andrew Weissman as well for South by Southwest Interactive South Bites. So now we got Tom, who facilitated a panel Just this week with Emma Jansen of Imbibe and Jason Cosmas of The 86 Company about how to drink wisely in the craft boom. I think Tom and I drank very wisely, sipping the Sazerac 18. He's affirmed his place as one of the biggest and brightest in the city. So thanks everybody for listening to Show to V with Mike G. I hope you aren't getting too used to my sultry, sexy provocative, sick-ass allergy voice. I think it will be gone by the next episode. But no matter which band you're waiting to see and standing in line for which free beers you spill all over your sandals, please keep dancing.